0: You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name's Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 151 is Kyle Coughlin. He started in Ireland with Sean O'Hagan as micro-Disney, and you're right now listening to Town to Town, probably the most successful single from their fourth album, Crooked Mile 1987. After five albums, that group broke up. Kyle led the Fatima Mansions from 1988 to 1995, releasing seven albums. He then released five solo albums through 2010 and took a long break working on some theater collaborations. And we're here promoting his new album, Song of Coaklin. We're going to talk about the final track, Unreal Time, from that album. Then look back to his third full solo album, 2002's The Sky's Awful Blue. The song is Denial of the Right to Dream. And then we'll go back to the Fatima Mansions. The song is "A Valley of the Dead Cars from 1989's Against Nature, their first album. And then we'll conclude by listening to the title track off the Song of Coaklin, For more information, go to, I'm going to say it phonetically this time, katholcoghlan.com. For more about this podcast, go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And I'd love your support at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will play a little bit of Town to Town, the biggest hit from micro Disney from Crooked Mile 1987. But we're going to get very rapidly to the very new stuff. I know that you had taken nearly a decade off with this, You'd done some collaborations. You'd been doing a lot of stuff in musicals, performances. Can you say a little about where you're at with this particular new album and this song before we hear it?
1: This album was written over, I suppose, a period of about four years, mostly. A number of the songs went through many different arrangements as a result. By the time I got to it, I realized I was making an album. I thought I wasn't going to bother with that kind of thing anymore. So once that became plain, I started looking for targets that I wanted to hit musically that I thought represented what I'm about. And I mean, I know that sounds really obvious, but it seemed like a good moment to kind of take stock of a lot of things that have happened to me musically over the preceding decades. This record kind of represents a considerable number of them rather than focusing on just the one.
0: So the song we're going to listen to right now is Unreal Time, which is the final track much more mellow track than is on most of it. Can you say a little about your approach with this or what it means before we hear it?
1: Well, it started life as an instrumental, and I didn't know what to do with it for about three years. Um, It sounded a little bit like one of those Jean-Claude Vanier or uh, Ennio Morricone's non-spaghetti things from the mid-60s originally. But I didn't want to just pastiche, and I wanted it to be a, a real song. So it took a lot of wrestling to get to where it is now.
2: Gaelic rhyme pale face, springtime They ask my thoughts kindly Park bench and trees Chill farmland breeze Boats bob and knock mindlessly Let me know someone recollects Let me know I was seen No surprise if it's otherwise Silver light has breathed
0: The original foundation was this opening bass riff with the piano chords. Is that the beginning or was it something in the middle and the beginning got tacked on?
1: Uh, Well, funnily enough, it didn't even have a bass line originally because the chords in the various sections tend to pedal around one quite a lot. Well, bass just didn't kind of spring to mind straight away. And it was this kind of electric harpsichord with rolling snare drum. (laughs) Very different, as I say. It was all about the chords and the melody, which I knew was going to be strong, but it had a completely different structure. The what's now, the kind of main, what I call the D section, which is the, it comes forth and it also has a lot of D root notes in it. It was originally just a tagline on on the end of this cycle. So that sort of got blown up into being something much bigger.
0: I was trying to figure out like what the structure is and there's, Well, there's the pre-chorus, that let me know someone recollects, recollects, and then yeah, yeah, what seems like the chorus, the smoky streets I used to know, but then I put the real chorus, which is the close out, close out, which, okay, so that makes sense that that was originally just a tagline, and let's just keep it going, but that ends up being the thing that, I don't know, it has that crescendo throughout it, so it's not really a chorus. A chorus generally hits you. It is the sing-along part. It's almost like you've put a bridge here that happens a couple times.
1: I realized pretty quickly that it wasn't going to be a tin pan alley structured verse chorus, verse chorus, which is something that I gravitate towards a lot in my songs. It doesn't matter how dissonant or how clamorous what I'm doing is. I tend to hang on to the sort of verse chorus, verse chorus, middle eight, verse chorus type of thing as a guardrail. But on this occasion, I was fortunate that it just completely ruled itself out. So I was able to go this way, but it it was a bit of a weird one for anybody trying to play it. The bass came to mind because the obviously the big advantage of pedaling so much within the sections is there was quite a lot of space for a bass instrument to stretch out a little and and in a funny kind of a way to groove. More than if you were changing chords, you know, changing root note every bar, for example, or or more frequently. I wanted to go for the kind of, uh, what I refer to as the, the West German bass sound. And I don't mean German, I mean specifically West German. I mean, Bert Kaempfert. I mean, that safari tune that he did in the 1960s that was horribly plagiarized from Umbuye. The same tune from South Africa that became Wimoway. There's a particular kind of flat wound, picked, you know, precision bass type sound that I, I just really like. And Sean O'Hagan is a something of a master of that.
0: Okay, so you had that in mind. But as an afterthought, I mean, that's interesting that sort of what becomes the signature of the song was, no, this was just supposed to be a piano chords or, you know, whatever the piano substitute and singing. you saying West German is making me think of that. I don't know, your past couple of few solo albums seem, I guess you did a lot of musicals in France. Like, I don't know the the literature to say what the style is, where you're using a lot of jazz chords, you're using Tin Pan Alley techniques. But it seems very part of a three-penny opera kind of, you know, very melodically focused. And so this could also have been that. But adding that whole extra layer of very careful arrangement here, to me, snaps it out of that. It's not just you standing in front of an orchestra, but it's all about you. It's a very much a more, I don't want to say pop arrangement, but... (laughs) interaction uh, more than you know the soloist against the the piano and you could put a 15-piece orchestra behind the piano but it still ends up being this kind of vocal-centered old-style pre-rock thing
1: yes i think that's a fair summary actually you know for many years really after the from about the turn of this century onwards i've been trying to become more and more pre-rock but there are things in my dna that just won't (laughs) shift and and i've given up trying to resist that but it has taken me to some interesting places and I've learned a lot. And certainly the music of Kurt Weill is a really foundational part of my formation, as a both as an appreciator of music and someone who makes it. You know, hearing some tunes from Threepenny Opera when I was like 16 or 17 on television in Ireland really kind of turned my head. And later on, things like when David Bowie sang Brecht's Baal for a a very low-key production on on BBC Two, you know, and the soundtrack from that was released. It, It just seemed to indicate a way of achieving the things that I was interested in about rock music without using that harmonic vocabulary at all. And at the point where I despaired, you know, when we had in Britain, things like Britpop were happening in the 1990s and grunge had kind of run its course and was still running that course some decade after the demise of Nirvana. It seemed like the whole vocabulary of guitar music had been traduced and sold down the river so severely that, you know, it was time to try and find dry land someplace else. But like I say, I'm, I'm not as polarized in my view now as I perhaps was for a long time.
0: So, as you do bring in more of the full band here, so was this Sean also doing these very reverb heavy guitar parts?
1: no that's me funnily enough
0: was that part of the original conception having these or was it really just piano and then you're trying to figure out those little guitar riffs going up the arpeggio sort of thing in the what we're calling the, the real chorus section must cut, must, do, do, do. yeah was that pretty early in the process
1: well it was before the final recording took place which was already about two and a half years down the down the track But some aspects of it were just busked as I was doing it because I hadn't intended to play that stuff myself because I'm really not very good. But because of the logistics of the recording and the fact that lockdown had just kicked in, the very brilliant guitarist who played most of the other stuff on the album and who I've worked with for years, it just wasn't going to be practical for him to play on it. It was through a process of fooling around, really, that a lot of those kind of heavily whammy barred things and Stuff like that happened.
0: I mean, you were saying you kind of came up with this bass riff and Sean came in and did that. Is that typical of how you work? You know, so if you had written this guitar part and you had your other guitarist who did most of the rest of the songs come in to do this, those riffs still would have been there. Like, use this as the launching point. It seems very carefully orchestrated is what I'm saying. There's not a lot of room for other players to come in and add a bunch of (laughs) extra ideas. It is
1: very dense in its final state. It wasn't so much so when it was just one vocal before all those backing vocals went on. So I think there would have been some scope. The type of density that it has is very much an artifact of the final stages of the recording. I knew I did want to have multiple voices on it. The female voice is my friend Eileen Gogan, who is an Irish singer-songwriter who sang... In the reunified Micro Disney shows in 2018, 2019, and I'm I'm a big fan of her, of her solo work. Anyway, yeah, I really wanted to have a strong female kind of contralto arranged voice on there, and I just thought it'd be really good to find something that Sean would sing that would showcase him rather than stacking him up in the way that he does a lot on, on his high albums and his solo stuff.
0: So you're saying they're both on this in that end section? Okay.
1: Yeah. Sean is the one singing the It's On Real Time refrain, which is kind of foregrounded in the final round. Eileen is doubling my lead line.
0: an interesting use of, not a very typical use of, I'm going to bring in a female vocalist. You know, When I do that, it's because I want somebody hitting the soprano. I want an angel to be on top of. But to actually just get someone with a, a pretty low voice and be in unison and just provide that thickness of tone, it's not even an extra note. Right?
1: Quite right. Yeah. I don't know, but f- because of some of the, the places the lyric goes, I felt it important to have a female Irish voice. I don't mean to sound jingoistic, but it was quite important to the integrity of the thing. And I was fortunate to know a number of them, and Eileen is among the very best. So
0: So talking about the lyrics, I mean, a lot of it is the description of these Irish environments, landmarks. I wasn't sure if this was a personal or a political, things have been wasted and forgotten. Can you say a little more about what the message is here?
1: I would say it's much more personal than political. When a person reaches a point of crisis in their life and the past seems to flash through the person's consciousness very vividly, it's very hard to come back to the moment you're actually in. And some stuff happened to me in 2019 that very much took me out of the the moment that I was in. So it begins with me sitting beside the River Shannon with some people having a conversation and feeling lifted out of that. I should say I don't get to go to Ireland all that much. And no, I haven't been at all for almost two years because of obvious factors. I've said and done a lot of things to do with Ireland in the past that have been, could be construed as uncomplimentary. I've had a lot of occasion to revise my view on things. And while there's still time, I want it to be heard. So that's kind of what it is, really.
0: So like cells realigned to nothing, that might be more literal than I was thinking. Yeah. In terms of logistics, putting this together, so the really interesting percussion here, was this mostly because you were just layering this yourself? And so having a little bit of snapping and (laughs) clicking and one low hit on the tom, you know, made more sense than, or was this still a full kit player that you were drawing on recording at their house?
1: It's a mixture. Most of the drums on the album were done in one studio in South London called Snorkel, which is run by, as luck would have it, a very fine drummer named Frank Bing, but he didn't actually play on it. Nick Allen, who I've worked with for many years, who also plays with the apartments, he played all the kit. And while he was doing it, we just busked some bits of percussion because Frank has lived in Africa and has collected a lot of percussion. And so we just busked a few bits there and I... At home, I overdubbed a, a frame drum, just a very basic one with bits of gaffer tape stuck on it to try and deaden the note a, a little bit, so it's just a boop Again, the benefit of digital editing cannot be underestimated in this case.
0: Was that actually programming? It seemed like on... Like the early Fat Mansions albums, there's this division between the full band stuff and things that seemed like you probably sat down and did your orchestra here. Is that sort of one of the foundational things that you've been doing throughout here?
1: I tend to do quite detailed digital demos, but I mean, I try to break with them as much as I possibly can. But quite often the ability to break is heavily governed by... The time you get to spend, whether that's in a studio or in in someone's own place or, you know, whatever the logistics are. And I don't really have a problem with that. So in this case, there isn't that much of the digital stuff left on there. And things like the percussion, I tried to keep the actual phrases as live as I possibly could. So it's really just a matter of chopping things around and having them in the ideal spot and repeating things if they're working, you know, a little bit.
0: But are you using the demo as the click track, essentially, and then just taking out the bits of it, or is it just the influence? I'm using it as a click track,
1: yeah. The freedom to just kind of start from a completely live start simply wasn't there. I I feel that would take a good deal more time than I've got. It is very different when you've got a band that are used to playing together live, and you just kind of go in the studio, and I have done plenty of that in my time, and I would like to do it again, but... Its absence is not going to destroy me.
0: Sure, and a lot of these sound very live, even if they were, you know, originally had some sort of digital heartbeat. Let's talk about the sponsor, and you know who that's going to be. It's going to be Masterclass, where you learn from the world's greatest minds anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. Do you like, say, music? Well, for instance, there is a new course by Alicia Keys on songwriting and production that goes into vocal arrangements, how to use journaling and poetry writing, and empathy to fuel your creations, or maybe you're old school and you want to listen to Carlos Santana talking about the art and soul of guitar. And a course like this one, or Itzhak Perlman on violin, ranges right within the course from very practical stuff for players of those actual instruments to very abstract philosophical stuff. ...applicable to every kind of musician... ...and they're just so entertaining and well shot... ...with more than a dozen music courses by luminaries... ...people way too famous to be on this show... ...that's worth the price of admission. But once you're there... ...maybe you want to listen to Serena Williams... ...to Helen Mirren... ...to James Cameron... ...Werner Herzog... ...Gordon Ramsey... ...David Mamet... ...Steve Martin... ...Malcolm Gladwell... etc., etc. ...it is crazy! And all these courses come with additional class materials downloadables, sheet music in some cases, recipes for the many cooking courses, and you've got a connection to a community, other people who are watching, listening to these things, that you can share your experiences with, connect with. You can go as deep or as shallow as you want. You can do a whole course. You could just do individual little snippets. This can really fit in with all the busy activities in your life. Just a little 10-minute smidge will get you a nugget of wisdom that you can apply to your work, to your life whether it's Wayne Gretzky telling you how to set attainable goals or Bob Woodward telling you how to grow your roster of sources, people that trust you. This is a wonderful library. I highly recommend you check it out. You can get unlimited access to every masterclass. As a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off your annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. Let's actually move to an older one here, Denial of the Right to Dream from The Sky's Awful Blue two thousand two. Can you say a little about how much of a band did you have at that point? Is it your third solo album in? That's right. Correct.
1: Yeah, The Sky's Awful Blue. Very much a live band. This was the Grand Necropolitan Quartet. Many members of which are on the new album also, but the particular sound that I was very much infatuated with at that point is the kind of pentangle influenced type of sound so really anything with danny thompson playing bass on it was what i was listening to just all the time all the pentangle offshoots john martin some nick drake i'm not i'm not the world's most obsessive nick drake fan but those ideas about arrangements somehow kind of crossed with the very dry sounding chicago post-rock sound of bands like Gastrodale soul and Tortoise. Which were about at that point. So, this is quite a live track. I think there probably was a click, but everything played is live.
2: The black and the blue of the day, a pentacle hike for your pains and take a wander down neptune stairs come and take a wander down neptune stairs The river will win where it may through grumbling duchies of rain come and take a wander down neptune stairs fistfuls of moly red rice in our hair old kentish men in stetson hats avenge their deaths in tiny acts grass towers haunt the plains of tar. They see how weak you are and you will not dream. You will not dream. You will not dream. Will not dream. Here come the weak and the start. So show them how welcome they are. There's something for the tourists of a future age. Cultural heritage and TV grade. Never meant it to work And now every shade is a church And you're moving to the country Where the roads are paved Leaving something for the tourists of a future age Tune in, drop out for Friday night Come Monday, love your convict's lies. Stay at your post till 9pm Go home, lock up the van You will not drive not dream You will not dream Those gleaming screens will have their say Ten lingos bite the dust each day you will not, not dream. Dream. You, will you will not dream You will not dream See Om Kalthum and Harry Patch repenting for their ugly eyes You will not dream You will not Can be on every conclusion, proven wrong. Own up, stand up, support yourself as one of the high help. Live with the tea.
0: right so live band but obviously overdubbed strings right or did you have a cello player in the band at the time
1: oh absolutely cello player yeah audrey riley no she's on the new record too no she's a terrific player
0: so you had an upright bass and that drum sound where you're not is it just playing on the snare rather than a hi-hat you know that it all sounds just like different volumes of snare
1: Yeah, Nick was basically just kind of not playing a straightforward kind of rockabilly sort of rat-a-tat, you know, ducadaka ducadaka. But he kind of plays around with the accents a bit, so this they do travel. But the double bass, Danny Manners, like completely—I won't say metronomic, but it, you, you know where the, where the up and down beats are, just mainly from the bass and the, and the kick drum. So that gives the snare a bit of space. Certainly, the verses just don't have a great deal on them, which was something I was very happy to do, because I just thought that was the way that that band plays best, and it was the way we'd been playing live on the lead-up to it.
0: Well, if you're going to have a really interesting Spanish guitar part, should expose it. It seems like it... Yeah. Don't cover that stuff up. Although, as you get into it, I guess that sort of becomes a little... Are you going to hear more cello, or are you going to hear more guitar? And I hear little things in the mix of, okay, we need this dun-dun-dun, you know, we need these individual guitar notes to come out, even though there's no reason that they, you know, that's obviously a mixing thing.
2: There is no side you can be on, every conclusion proved wrong.
0: I don't know, how was this band to play live with in terms of the balance? What was the cello and one or two guitars and keyboard? Uh, just,
1: Just the one guitar. At that point, the only keyboard on stage would be me playing some piano. It was quite a sparse setup, and I mean, as with so many things, I wish we had been able to do it more, but the opportunity didn't really arise to take it, you know, really on the road as such.
0: So, like the last song, it sounds like we're describing local geography of some sort, but I wasn't sure what this pentacle hike for your pains, come and take a wander down Neptune stairs, like, is there a Neptune stairs?
1: <laughs> well, not literally, but the thing I was thinking about was the east end of London, where I've lived for many years. That Pentacle Hike, I mean, this was written in the heyday of the the fashion for psychogeographical investigations of urban landscapes, especially the East End. There There was a famous book called Lights Out for the Territory by Ian Sinclair. It's a terrific book, a little bit of a compendium of all the outsider artists that have been operating within the East End environment since, I guess, the late 1960s up to the late 90s. And Sinclair would throw in these references to occult landscapes and strange formations of buildings and of, of individual architectures of buildings, I mean, especially the architect Nicholas Hawksmore, who was a, a pupil of Christopher Wren. Wren was the architect who essentially redesigned much of the city of London after the Great Fire of 1666, and Hawksmore followed on from him. Into the 18th century, and he would put these pyramids in strange places, in churchyards, and I mean, he was probably a mason. He probably just had a lot of the same stuff going on as the as the eye and the pyramid on the dollar, or whatever. You know, I mean, it was <laughs> ripe for investigations. Really, shall we say? Much of Sinclair's thesis was built around the kind of there are something like six major churches that Hawksmoor built within a space of two or three miles from the city of London eastwards beyond the ancient boundaries and out into what we call the East End. So anyway, that kind of free-roaming through the city is just what I'm trying to describe there.
0: So is that you observing so much of the song is, it seems to be about some kind of stultifying work situation, you know, stage your post till nine, and then you get to go home and party, and then you're back to it, and you have a meaningless life, and you cannot dream. You're saying this is the thing you are contemplating and then all this psychogeography and you walking around is you as observer of this? Or is that actually part of the same story of what you're observing?
1: It's the evolution of a person's life from being at the point where they are able to roam freely and just dream. And the gradual impoverishment of the urban environment through the interesting people being pushed out and people with money choosing to desert it, at least, you know, to make way for investment-based living, high-rises taking the place of squats and older buildings. So I'm just kind of saying this is what will be left when it all goes, the idea of a person who's just a consumer and a drone. That is what will be left. And we will have no more even the cultural diversity you could see in In music, between, say, I mentioned Om Khaltoum, the Egyptian singer, and Harry Parch, the American outsider, composer, and instrument designer, which is a gross exaggeration, but sometimes in a song you just have to do that.
0: So why would they be repenting for their ugly art? Is that just that in this commercial landscape everything must be pop, that nothing like these men produced would exist?
1: things must be homogenized. I I think I was overestimating the capacity of globalization to achieve that kind of homogeneity, because certainly some things have been made horribly anodyne in the culture in the 20 years since I made made this thing. But when you hear a lot of what goes on in music derived from hip hop, for example, the really strange stuff people do now, it hasn't been one-way traffic. is is all that I'm saying. I don't claim to be an expert, but like a Migos record or something like that, I mean, that would not have been possible in the 1990s. I mean, people were making strange hip-hop. Of course they were. But this super high-tech strange hip-hop is something to be lauded, I think, and it really is strange.
0: Well, I don't know if that's the evolution of market forces, but just the complete breakdown of markets so that, yes, there is a homogenized central pop product that is pumped out, much more ubiquitously than it ever was. But because that's so narrow, and well, yeah, most of the money is right there, but that just leaves this chaos that is not actively suppressed in a way that it would be if there was a larger mainstream.
1: True, yeah. It is in part because of all the slicing and dicing and the deliberate targeting of culture at small groups of people, the same as the politics are, yeah.
0: I mean, were you feeling like in in the mansions or in micro Disney that you're, you know, there were certain pop standards that if you were going to get to the next level that you had to include, you know, I don't hear a single on the album, that kind of thing. Were you feeling those commercial pressures in a chafing way?
1: (laughs) Oh, very much so. I mean, towards the end of both bands, that was the biggest chafe really was, can we hear some demos? No, I don't like them. Do some more. Yeah, that's quite good. Let's look for a producer endlessly those types of things became an intense problem but those are not problems i've had to contend with for many many years at this point
0: <laughs> well now the gatekeepers are no longer interested <laughs> remotely so they're gonna not gonna submit any pressure see that's how, kind of how i was perhaps interpreting on real time was the i wasn't really sure if that was part of the personal part was worrying about your legacy
1: no i think it's doting your grip on reality To the point you don't know whether you're dreaming or not.
0: So, again, much more literal. Let me know I was seen. That's not about let me know that I have a legacy and I'm remembered. That was like, let me know that I'm literally in this space and not having some sort of breakdown. Back to denial of the right to dream, which is a more coherent political thing. Yeah, I think this psychogeography is just funny that I've never heard that in an American context. Certainly there are places where, uh, you know, what's the, the neighborhood, especially of New York City or somewhere like that, that people would want to talk that way. But for the most part, we've been homogenized and McDonald'sized, you know, from the beginning. So the fact that there's not 800 years of history or, or more to dive back into at least changes how one would try to philosophize about the landscape. It becomes, you know, more, more like what you're doing in the first song and talking about the natural features of the land rather than the character of the city.
1: Yes. I mean, the fact is it's got the river running through it no matter what. And the, and the river is a constant and it, it takes people out. That's the route that people follow when they tend to follow when they're being expelled from the inner city. But I don't know that I entirely agree about the American thing because certainly that book, Low Life, Luke Saint's book about New York City, I think has had a big influence globally. And Mike Davis's books are about Los Angeles. I think, are really important. But you are right. The American city in its conception, certainly outside of a handful of places like New York, Boston, Chicago, Portland, are very much about doing it once and doing it right for the purpose that people have in their minds and not engaging in these continuous waves of totally leveling the place (laughs) and starting over and only leaving a few little telltale signs here and there in the way the European cities tend to have been because of war and fire
0: of all kinds so is this image of the river is that driving the musical choices here because now that you say that the constant of the river and that's the only thing that can bring you out then that sets up a structure for me to understand you know that choice of the drum pattern that is just driving through here and
1: yeah that's definitely completely intentional it's one of my travel songs i mean i i tend to lapse into this from time to time and some of the things of mine that i like best really are are those but if i did them all the time they'd be rubbish
0: so is there a solo demo of this somewhere, or was this really written with the group?
1: There is a solo demo, but I think it's a, just a very wooden, uninspiring thing.
0: Would that be you with the chords on keyboard, or actually strumming a guitar or something? To
1: It's just a sequencer thing, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: I guess I'm, again, trying to get at how much you're telling your players. So stuff like that, dun, 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 dun. you know, that little guitar riff that sticks out, that sounds like something that, you know, might have been in your sequence, or that you were singing at the person, but maybe not so much the cello riffs that you sort of left to her. The cello riffs
1: were an outline, mm-hmm. but things like the glissando stuff that Audrey does, the da 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 da, really hard to do, and not something. I mean, wouldn't even presume to.
0: Was that part of the sequence? I guess is that that question. Didn't, you know that something a bit like it was,
1: but I mean, certainly it didn't have that. Dynamic quality at all. And both James Woodrow, the guitarist, and Audrey are from a classical background. They're very active in that world still. They both play quite a lot with the composer Gavin Bryars, especially James. They're used to being given strong guidance as to notes, but quite a lot of latitude as to the expressiveness, which they're played on a kind of a almost micro level, but it's the kind of thing that cumulatively does hit the spot emotionally. So that's the way of working that we've had over the years.
0: And then to get out of the chorus, there's vibes or something like that. Is that? Vibes, just your yeah, keyboard? Yeah. Okay, so actual vibes to come in to do three notes, basically. <laughs>
2: you will not dream, you will not. He does
1: some kind of muted stuff here and there that you're not entirely aware of. Because the, the other thing at that point was I didn't want to be using keyboard pads or any any of that. Because that, that was part of my embitteredness. But I was really glad to get him in. He's Dominic Morcott from the High Lamas. Also a composer in his own right in it. The teacher. And yeah, he just made a beautiful sound. It gave it that kind of Chicago-ness that I wanted to have. Because at that point artists were working a lot in that kind of space as well.
0: I'm not sure what the alternative would have been, but I just, I found this structural thing interesting about this, that it just, maybe it's again the river thing, that the verses are pretty not rapid fire compared to a lot of your delivery, but just the fact that it spills directly into the chorus, that you know, suddenly there's this big opening with the strings and the piano entering I guess we're going to see the same in our third song. There are definitely places, like at the end of the chorus, where I was just pointing, where, okay, we got to have something, little instrumental transition section to get us there. And I could very easily see in a song like this, which is based on this moving guitar, of like, let's finish the words of the verse, let the guitar do something, and then we have our nice, pretty chorus. But here, we're just pitched right into it.
1: It actually sounds like the bridge isn't quite finished, like it's only done three out of four, or whatever it is that... Our brain is telling us, and yeah, I just really like the effect that had, because it just hits you in the face with the you-will-not-dream message, without having to yell it. It just kind of trips you up slightly, rather than screaming it in your face.
0: Well, let's get that third example out here, because this also has sort of interesting use of where you're going to leave the space for the instrumental jam, where we're going to just pitch into it. This is Valley of the Dead Cars, from the mansions from Against Nature, 1989, so... This was my suggestion. I had not heard the whole, I think this is the only album by that band I'd heard at this point because you just released it on the streaming services like a few days ago. That's true. <laughs> within the last week as we're listening here. And so I had to hunt the rest of the stuff down on YouTube. I assume that that stuff will all come out eventually?
1: Soon, actually. Funnily enough, um, it's been a long, long wait. But yeah, there's finally a really good person involved in putting it together. and certainly in the next couple of months.
0: Well, just a tremendous variety and a lot of very, very high energy stuff on those albums. Do you want to say a few words about this song before we hear it?
1: Well, it was one of the first things that I wrote for what became the Fatima Mansions. I was obsessed with tritones at this point because Nick, who was even then was the drummer we were working with, had just told me about tritones, like the flattened fifth, you know,
0: the Devil's Tone,
1: yes. The, de- the, de- the Devil's <laughs> Interval, yeah. Um, so I thought, oh, f- yeah, I'm having some of that. So like this <laughs> the entire verse of the song is just built around like the piano was just kind of dropping from that tone through the, the whole notes below it. And it begins with that semitone screech and so on. I mean, someone t- once told me it, it reminded them of Magazine. And I was not put out because Magazine were a band that I loved when I was In my teens, that combination of dissonance and punky, aggressive rhythm seemed just right for that moment because it could not have been more different from what I'd been doing, you know, even a year previously in the closing stages of micro Disney. I just wanted to get out from under the way I was feeling about music at that point.
0: I got past the fact you know you have that tritone thing. Then, if you just kind of ignore that part, in a way, it becomes more traditional. I was picturing something from a particular, and I don't know which one Broadway musical. You know, this is the New York City, and the, the cars are going by, and it's the big overture. But I, you know, I have no specific reference for that. <laughs> but you've got the instrumentation. Of course, you would not hear that. Well, you might now. Who the hell knows what's happening on Broadway at this point? But at this point given that Broadway is always, you know, 20, 30 years back, having thrashy guitars and this piano leading that off would not be the instrumentation of that. But the gesture itself, I guess you were doing a lot of things in sort of the, I don't want to say rap, but how do you think about your rapid fire vocal delivery?
1: You know, it doesn't exactly get the lyrical message across very clearly, but other than that, I'm I'm quite happy with it. It certainly suited the message of the song, which was kind of very disrupted (laughs) it's a bit of a travel song but it's it's somebody traveling under a very very heavy load of trouble in their life very very you know sort of apocalyptically (laughs) troublesome life and in a way it's the opposite of unreal time it's me traversing ireland with a very very jaundiced eye you know irish people are notorious for this especially in the arts so i mean i know It might provoke some groans when I say this, but I always carry it with me in my mind because it formed me. There's something quite particular about migrating from a culture to another culture that's superficially quite similar, but in terms of the human landscape could not be more different. You're always looking for reference points. And that is so even when you intermarry and you kind of build some roots in the adopted place. I guess what I'm doing in lyrically in this thing is I'm looking at, at Ireland in the 1980s when things have really kind of really gone badly skew with. The society can't come to terms with what limited progress in people's social freedoms, sexual and intellectual, have those limited freedoms that have come into existence are kind of officially denied. So what I'm doing is I'm taking that kind of... Irish trope of seeing Ireland as a woman and I'm writing all of this dysfunction onto this woman. That's why I'm a little bit queasy that it could be seen as misogynistic but the intention was not to depict someone who was morally wrong, morally deficient or incapable, simply someone who had been forced into certain circumstances or they just fell off the bottom rung of society. And we left to fend, you know, in plain sight, in disgrace. And that's kind of what happened to me f- for a period in, in my late teens. Entirely through choices that I made myself. So I bring myself into it more and more as the song goes on. The me that's in the song definitely doesn't come across very uh, sympathetically either. So defense upon defense upon defense. But that's really what I'm doing. So... The rapid fire delivery really suits that because it's just flashing past at breakneck speed and you don't get to make choices. They make you and they make your future. And there is this moment at the end where the me character and the Ireland woman character embrace, but it's a hopeless situation.
0: That's a lot of story stuffed in here. Uh (laughs) The nuns told her, do not waste sensation. So I was reading that just in terms of this is purely a picture of a fictional prostitute, or how do I interpret that line in the light of this more complicated story that...
1: I think what it's saying is that I was obviously really full of the damage that the Catholic Church had inflicted on the country. Because for those who don't know, when the British left, you know, as the colonial power, they essentially ensured that they had put the Catholic Church in place as the supposed grown-ups in the room, so that the island next door to their island wasn't going to just erupt into the social mores of the, the 11th century, which was prior to their arrival, once again, after they left. So great social control was exerted by a particular flavor of Roman Catholicism, but it was very much operated by the Catholic middle class. And what I'm doing in that line is I'm mocking the idea that Catholicism is this kind of sensual faith where, you know, the incense and the vivid colors and the the Botticelli and the Caravaggio, you know, that this stuff somehow translates into the actuality that that faith creates when it's allowed to operate in a completely non-pluralistic environment, which is what happened to Ireland, you know, for a great many years, at least a century. So... That's why I felt I had to put in that dig, you know, the fact that this woman ends up in dire straits, but she's got like some absolutely worthless advice from the pedagogy, if you like, of her youth to guide her. It doesn't guide her.
0: It's an interesting mixture of tones and the fact that you can put in a little sort of ironic joke in there, as opposed to the whole thing being simply bitter, which certainly a lot of it, you know that's kind of what comes out if, if you're spinning all this, and but you hear junkie Man have your fill, like, okay, well, we got the general gist here, and then of course, the chorus itself is almost like the ironic peppiness of a commercial, and now they can rest at last, even the way that you're singing that, definitely uh, layers of, of snark on this one. It's punk, but yet it has things like that well, she had friends that went abroad and do not write, and what answers that is a piano doing this kind of ha cha ha chat like there's some very uncool things in this punk song is what i'm getting at
1: (laughs) we were kind of just feeling our way with that music really i mean we became a lot more single minded later on that is certainly a perfectly valid experience of this piece of music i'm not saying it isn't for one minute but if somebody had told me that back then i probably would have changed the whole thing (laughs) (laughs) It was a very long time ago.
0: If you're trying to do something with a punk ethos, is it offensive when somebody says, hey, you've incorporated something from Tin Pan Alley here? Because, like, that was my experience as a young songwriter and, like, I'm doing this original fucked up thing, and if somebody says, well, that sort of sounds like the Muppets, or that's, you know, (laughs) it sort of sounds like you're channeling something you heard on a commercial when you were five, like, I would have taken great offense at that, but that's where the weird ideas come from. That's when, you know, when you're trying to crank it to an unexpected place, what else do you have to draw on? Like, <laughs> unless it's going to be truly random, you're going to be Brian Eno rolling some dice or picking cards or whatever to decide what the next move is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be driven by the circumstances you're in when it's a real scruffy, non-funded type of situation, and then that's, that's really what we were in. I mean, I think the recording was done on some Demo time that was gifted to us. I remember mixing it with the guy that owned the studio, basically standing over us with his finger on the power switch. We had to get finished in the next few minutes. And this type of thing. So, yeah, it was a funny time. And we were very, very, very overexposed to the music to the point that I still can't really hear it with any great objectivity. Other things, even from the more recent past, I can. But there was just something about that time where everything was terribly heightened and terribly concentrated because. I wanted to make some version of that band work, because the micro-Disney thing had run its course, and I was kind of terrified.
0: I know this came together very suddenly. How did you track these people down and decide this was the group, and I'm not even clear on how much lineup change there was through the life of this group. I think it was just you and the lead guitarist, right? It there the only consistence?
1: Nick, the drummer, Oh, okay, also. Nick, the drummer as well. Yeah. We were the constants, yeah, and... On this track, it was John Fell from Micro Disney playing bass, who was also on my new record, and a keyboard player who was just a friend of the guitarist, like a really talented musician, but it didn't last, that relationship. We We went through a number of keyboard players. It was a bit like being the bass player in Roxy Music, but for different reasons.
0: Well, it was one of those reasons that, again, you were also the keyboard player that was coming in with, this is the way the songs are constructed, and that can be a very difficult thing to layer over. Like, I don't know, unless they have like a definite, this is your spot in the band. You get to fill that out with whatever you want. It was, yeah. But the keyboard is sort of too useful to do that. <laughs> it sort of has to carry too much weight of like definite counter melodies that I want to come in, but maybe that's what's going on here. What I was just picking up on, you had a really good piano player here, and he was just doing his his hot... <laughs> It's hot licks in
1: there no that was that was was something I asked him to do that that one's on me (laughs) basically there were different reasons why every one of the keyboard players voluntarily went but there is something in what you're saying certainly I think it's one thing to go to a more lucrative gig but you might not be as inclined to do it if you felt you had more influence over the band you were presently in so
0: the keyboard equivalent occurs to me, like with the Roxy Music bass player, is Squeeze, that they went through several people. But at least the keyboards have, like, this is the keyboardist role. This is what you do. And so they all kind of sound the same. Doesn't really matter who's playing on any given record. You know, it's still, that's the construction of the band. But I don't know, you guys were just so eclectic. It's hard for me to, without listening to all the albums many more times, which I plan on doing, to kind of hear what everybody's, whether there was anything like a consistent role for anybody.
1: For the guitar, bass, and drums, there absolutely was, yeah. Nearly all the time.
0: (laughs) In other words, not just the consistent people, but like, this is how you contribute. Were you even at this point, in terms of your orchestrations, like dictating to the drummer, this is the beat that I have in mind. I've done that with lots of drummers, and they don't like that (laughs) when I tell them. What to do?
1: No, I really wasn't doing that with Nick, no. There'd be some very basic drum machine on the demo, and I, I wouldn't try to... Play fast. <laughs> I would only stretch it out enough so I could bore up to repeated listens at home, but with no serious intention that that should be the way the part was constructed, you know?
0: All right. As we round the final minutes here, say something about the progress in style, right? You were saying you were locked into something with Micro Disney with that particular dynamic between the you and sean and i can see that sort of synth pop thing and how you were rebelling against that with fatima but then with the mansions it just seems like you're already so eclectic was it really just a personality thing in terms of breaking that to then do the solo thing or you said there was actual something about the style of the band that was too confining at that time
1: you mean the mansions
0: yes when the mansions ended moving to the next phase
1: i didn't want it to end the business with the record label got horrendous and it was just one of those no-win contractual situations like with indefinite hold no resources whatsoever and the members of the band just had to drift off and do other things you know which they've all done quite successfully in various ways so by the time i could make a record in the clear again
0: just trying to think if there was an ideological shift at that point like there was between Disney and the Fatima Mansions, that you were definitely like trying to do aggressively a new sound, whereas at this point it's just, well, these people aren't doing it anymore, I'll call it my own name, but I'm still kind of on the same ongoing musical path.
1: I was still on the same musical path, but the major thing that had happened was I wrote an entire album of Fatima Mansions material, which was never recorded. And I really felt I had hit the buffers in terms of what I could think of to do with those kinds of songs. So I recoiled from it, started writing songs like Black River Falls, which was the title track of the next solo thing I did.
0: Which was, again, sort of a more acoustic guitar based thing like we just heard.
1: And that really became one of my dominant things. And I was lucky enough to meet James Woodrow, who could really kind of play anything you threw at him in any key, because my keys, of course, are horrendous, far guitar players, routinely dreadful. I don't really do keys. It's more like, you know, the root notes are just in bad places, you know, lots of B flats that are supposed to sound resonant, you know, that kind of thing. So I had the feeling that there was really something of substance here. And looking back on what I'd been trying to do for that Mansions record that didn't happen, I just didn't feel that was something I could really revive in my own mind, just as something I could actually express myself through and inspire other people with other musicians. Then there was that thing that I mentioned earlier on. I thought so much of the vocabulary had been traduced and devalued and turned into heritage that I just did not want to be part of it. I, d- I don't view myself as the ultimate iconoclast. You know, I'm not Xenakis, but I just had new interests and French pop, the music of Kurt Vile, Irish traditional music especially English language ballads that are sung in Ireland and um, these things all of these things seemed like more valid points of contact for me and things I was into from way back like the, the Beach Boys and John Cale and uh, Todd Rundgren in a huge way still these were all things that I wanted to be aiming myself at really seeing myself as more of a singer-songwriter in a kind of a fucked up way.
0: Well and I think that that is a great introduction to our final selection we're going to just leave folks with which is the title track from your new album song of co which now that you say run like i can hear that in, in this i guess yeah this is one that's really just grabbed a hold of me can you say just a few words about that before we send it folks way and say goodbye
1: believe it or not it started life as a kind of an attempt at a avant-garde bluegrass number i had this idea that if you could do a really dissonant string band that might be something of interest, but it just evolved into this chugging thing. And I've always been a fan of the, the cheeky little Colin Newman pop songs that are on a lot of albums by the band Wire. And that was one thing and some cheesy scenes and like fling it all together. And it, it is, it's another kind of travel song, but it's this sort of a lysergic travel, you know, it's a very disrupted, even more disrupted than Valley of the Dead Cars travel song travel and travail
0: all right here it is thanks so much for doing this
1: thank you mark
2: hamster live stream on the high definition boil hamster quite soon for a feast you bombs. deep frying some shelves updating their profile big tunnel by night to places of safety Make a video call when ceilings are falling. Paris still in India. The rent were fixed it for me. All oh, only have time. Vacuum food for TV. Tell me when, tell me when. Fixes Cadavers and ditches Feast you Silicon fixes, just kitcheners' britches. Feast your eyes, seems the robots up and died. Feeling affronted, come on, blame the unwanted.
0: Thank you so much to Cahill. I'm 90% sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Irish pronunciations are very unnatural to me, and he did tell me, as we started the interview, how to say it. I know it's not Cahill. This latest album is really great, and just stumbling across Cahill's output, I feel like I was introduced to another Elvis Costello, but yet only had a couple weeks to internalize what I was hearing, so I did my best. You can learn more about him by going to CahillCoughlin.com, and I've got to say, this is a really good string of Nakedly Examined Music episodes. Next is Glenn Phillips. Toad the Wet Sprocket, and then Steve Kilby, lead singer for The Church, and Chris Connolly, a name I was not familiar with, but he was the sometimes singer for Ministry on some of their most famous albums, Revolting Cox, around the same time in the early 90s. So big, gritty industrial bands, but then he's had a string of solo albums based on acoustic guitar and very David Bowie-like vocals, getting increasingly complex, very much like the Cahill Coughlin stuff you just heard here. His latest thing that we discuss is a double album that is a narrative depicting the lives of two Scottish poets and their romance, real historical figures. So another very literary gentleman. I hope you're subscribed directly to this podcast, even if you're listening to this individual episode on the Partially Examined Life feed. You know these episodes don't stay there forever, go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Or if you're feeling generous, if you're feeling like you want to show me that you are a loyal listener who cares that this comes out, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. You can sign up to be a supporter of the show. You'll get my show notes and include the lyrics, my comments on the arrangements, the things that went into this interview. I really need more listeners to step up, even if it's just a very small per episode amount and you can set a maximum for the month. You are showing to me that you want this thing to continue. And I am the kind of person that needs that validation. Speaking of, I have a new project called Philosophy Versus Improv. It is likely not, as you are hearing this, quite on the streaming surfaces yet. But if you go to philosophyimprov.com, you can hear a few episodes, see what that's like. Well, I am continuing in wonderful post-pandemic mode. Have met again with my band, reunited with a member that I thought might not be rejoining us. I have a couple gigs booked, and most importantly, wrote, completed a new song, which I had not done in a long time, and I think it's quite good, or at least an accurate reflection of this time in my life where I will be turning 50 soon, and most of my really old friends also turn 50 this year, and just where we're all at. Well, wherever you're at, I hope it is creatively fulfilling, aesthetically pleasing, and otherwise feeds your soul Whatever this means to you, keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark linton signing off.